listening to the Good News in the Dark World podcast. Join us as we study God's Word and discover Jesus on every page. Here's Pastor Kevin. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Most of you know that uh, I did not grow up in the church. Uh, Children, you have the the blessing, a very real blessing, of uh, growing up in a Christian home, uh, perhaps going to the Christian school. Uh, the, the blessing of being in church on Sunday and Sunday school classes and weeknight programs. I, I didn't have that growing up. First time I went to church, I think I was 12 years old. And shortly after that, the Lord in his sovereign grace brought me to saving faith in Christ. Not too long into my Christian life, I was in high school. And I remember reading this passage and it was very mysterious to me. Because it it made me kind of scratch my head and ask the question, how could Jesus be tempted? I had heard for three plus years that that Jesus never sinned. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I couldn't grasp how Jesus could really be tempted if he could not sin. Now, you know, the fact of the matter is that there are many things the Bible teaches that we can't really wrap our minds around. The great commentator William Hendrickson mentions a number of those. He says, here are some things that we can't fully understand. How did sin originate in the sinless heart of Adam? How is our guilt imputed to Jesus? How is Jesus's perfect righteousness imputed to us? How can Jesus be both omniscient, meaning he knows everything with respect to his deity, but not be omniscient with respect to his humanity? How can God be one and yet also three? There are many things in the Bible that we can't fully grasp. And so we come to Matthew 4, as I did as a high schooler, and we ask the question, how could someone without sin be tempted? We we confess that Jesus is impeccable, meaning that he 
could not sin. He's incapable of sinning. How could he be tempted? Now, the immediate answer would be to say, I don't know. But the Bible tells me that he was tempted, and so I believe what the Bible says. And as we look at this somewhat mysterious passage together this morning, I really want you to see the enormous comfort that it brings to you. And the enormous truth it teaches us about the foundation of our salvation. Three things we're going to look at. First of all, Jesus is led. He's led out into the wilderness. Secondly, Jesus is tempted, tempted by the devil. And third, Jesus is triumphant. He is led, he is tempted, he is triumphant. Chapter 4 begins by telling us that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In other words, God is the one who arranged this, isn't he? As R.C. Sproul said many, many years ago, there is not one renegade molecule in the entire universe. In other words, God is sovereign over all things. And so it is the Spirit of God who leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Why? So that he might be tempted by the devil. Now it's Satan who wants to tempt Jesus, but it's God who is going to test Jesus. And it's very important that we understand this distinction. God never tempts us in the sense of enticing us to sin. James chapter 1, verse 3, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so understand, brothers and sisters, we are tested by God for our good. We are tempted by the devil for evil. Very important that we keep in mind those two distinctions. But in all that Satan and his demons do, they are under the sovereign authority of God. Nothing happens anywhere apart from God's sovereignty. As, as Martin Luther once said, the devil is God's devil. He does what God allows. And so Christian, take comfort in this. God will never tempt you for evil. But in his sovereignty, he will use the devil's temptations for your good. And at the same time, as we think about this passage, don't forget that the pattern of the Christian life, the pattern of your Christian life, will mirror the earthly life of Jesus. Suffering and then glory. The, the Christian life, and, and we all should know this by now, the Christian life is not one of endless victories. Constant happiness, abundant prosperity. No, the Christian life means trials. It means temptations. It means suffering. It means self-denial. And so Jesus is led out into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. Now, why would God want to do this? Why is God doing this to Jesus? Well, we have to understand that, that God is not testing Jesus because he needs to make sure that, that Jesus is obedient and faithful. He's not doing this because the father is wondering, hmm, I wonder if my son is worthy of this job. No, God is testing Jesus for us. 
so that he and his perfect obedience might be the grounds of our right standing before God. So that we might be certain of Jesus' obedience and faithfulness. So that we might have a rock-solid confidence that he is the perfect Savior who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what we see here this morning. In addition to that, of course, Jesus is being tempted so that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses. We'll talk about that later on in the sermon. Now notice what we're told next in verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Is there any significance to the number 40? Well, I'm, I'm sure many of you are getting tired of hearing me say this, but there is once again, an Old Testament connection to this. In fact, there are a number of Old Testament connections. Take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to look at a few passages this morning. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 34. And I want you to notice verse 28. Exodus 34, 28. So he, meaning Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now go over to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. There is in the fasting of Jesus for these 40 days and nights a very strong Old Testament connection. First of all, as you just saw with Moses, 1 Kings chapter 19, notice verse 8. And he, Elijah, arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So there is a connection with Moses. There is a connection with Elijah. What about Israel? Israel wandered in the wilderness, children, for how long? 40 years. And so you put this all together, and there is a very significant connection with this number 40. What's being pictured here is that Jesus is, first of all, the new Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God said that he would raise up a prophet greater than Moses. This is him, Jesus Christ. But he speaks better things than the law of Moses. Jesus is the new Elijah, but instead of a ministry of the condemnation of the Mosaic law, Jesus comes not with a ministry of condemnation, but with a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is the new Israel. Just as Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and was tested, Jesus has now been in the wilderness for 40 days and he is about to be tested. And we could also say that Jesus is the second Adam. Whereas the first Adam was in a, a beautiful garden full of food, full of water, full of every good thing, the second Adam is in the wilderness, weak from hunger and all alone. And so Jesus is led out to the wilderness where he has been for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. Now I ask you this morning, how do you feel when you skip lunch? 
You get up, maybe 7 a.m., you have some breakfast, you skip lunch, you don't have any snacks, you get to about 6 p.m., and you are starving, absolutely starving. Jesus was really, really hungry. Imagine how vulnerable he would be. If it was me, I might be questioning the Father's love. Father, do you really love me? I might be questioning the Father's plan. And now that leads us to the second thing that we see in this passage, and that is that Jesus is tempted. The devil comes to Jesus, and his first temptation, of course, has to do with this immense hunger that Jesus is experiencing. And he says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Satan knew, and he still knows, that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, this word, if, in verse 3, could be translated since. Since you are the Son of God, do this. Come on, Jesus. You've got the power to do this. Go ahead. You you know you want to eat. We all know that the strong pull of food when we are hungry. Go to... Go to In-N-Out Burger when you're really hungry. Walk in and try to order a cup of water. See how that goes, right? Not going to go well. After 40 days, Jesus is famished. And how tempting it would be to turn these stones into bread. And and what's wrong with that? What's wrong with with Jesus using his power to, to satisfy his intense hunger? Well, once again, we need to see the parallel with Old Testament Israel. Remember what happened in the book of Exodus. God sends the ten plagues upon Egypt. God leads his people out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. They go right through the Red Sea, chapter 14, chapter 15. We get to chapter 16, and what is Israel doing? Just one chapter later, listen to what it says. They set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Israel is hungry, and what do they do? Rather than trusting the Lord, rather than trusting that he will provide for them, they complain. Moses, why did God bring us out here? We think he brought us out here to kill us. Well, now fast forward all these centuries later, and here is Jesus, the true Israel, and what does he do when facing the very same temptation? Notice verse 4 of Matthew 4. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. By the way, all the times that Jesus quotes from Scripture in this passage, as he does here, it all comes from that time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And so again, we are seeing the, the, the very strong parallel between Israel, who failed miserably, and Jesus. Israel is in the wilderness being tempted. Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted. 
Now, children, have you ever been so hungry before, so starving before, that you say to mom and dad, if I don't eat soon, I'm going to die? Now, we know you're being a little extreme. You're probably not at the verge of death. But we've all thought before, if I don't eat soon, I'm just going to die. But, but Jesus knows there is something far more important than food. Jesus knows that what he really needs for life is the word of God. Jesus knows that if he does not have the food of God's word, he will really die. Jesus would rather starve to death than not have his father's word. It makes me think of what Job says in Job 23, that he treasured the word of God more than his daily food. Now, Israel gave in to this temptation, didn't they? Exodus 16, they grumbled, they complained. God, you're trying to kill us out here. And so often, we give in to this temptation. We care more about our physical life and our physical needs and our physical wants than we do about obeying God's word and trusting him. But not Jesus. Jesus knows that just as God provided manna for his people in the wilderness, he knows that his Father will provide for all of his needs. And so Jesus, as our perfect Savior, passes the first test. Now, as we know from personal experience, Satan doesn't just give up. He comes back. He's going to go a different route. And Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and he takes him to the top of the temple. And notice what the devil says to Jesus in verse 6. If, or since, you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, okay, Jesus, it's obvious that you're not going to take your own physical needs into your own hands. You're not going to turn these stones into bread. It's obvious that, that you're, going to, you're going to trust your father. Well, let's see just how much you trust him. You say you trust your father for all your physical needs? Okay, great. Let's see how much you really trust him. After all, doesn't the Bible say that the angels will make sure that you don't get hurt? I want you to see that behind this is the subtle hint that the father doesn't really love the son. Satan is saying, look, Jesus, your, your father has left you out here in the wilderness all alone. You have no food, you have no drink, you have no companionship, you have nothing. And after all of this, you really think that he loves you? You really think that your father cares for you? In all likelihood, the, the pinnacle of the temple was part of the reconstruction of the temple that was done under Herod the Great. And, and it is believed that according to the Jewish historian Josephus, that it was about 450 feet from the pinnacle of the temple down to the valley floor. For comparison's sake, if you've ever seen or been to the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty is 305 feet tall. So add another 150 feet to that, and that is the height from which the devil is saying to Jesus, just throw yourself down, and the angels will protect you. Jesus responds in verse 7. He says again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
This is a quote from Deuteronomy 6, but it takes us back to something that happened in Exodus 17. Exodus 16 is when they complained about not having food and water and that God was trying to kill them. Exodus 17 is where they're demanding more water. And they even say in Exodus 17, verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? We don't think he's with us. Israel didn't trust that the Lord would provide for them and care for them. And you know, when you think about it, isn't that really rather remarkable? I mean, what had the people of Exodus seen? They had seen 10 plagues. They had seen the Red Sea parted. They had seen Pharaoh and his army drown. They had seen manna coming down from heaven. And yet they still doubted the Lord's love. If you're like me, this is something that you struggle with. Even though we have seen the greatest expression of God's love for us. Greater than the ten plagues, greater than the Red Sea, greater than manna from heaven. We have seen the greatest expression of the Father's love and that is the gift of his Son. You and I are tempted to complain about our circumstances. We are tempted to doubt God's love for us. We are tempted even to question what God is doing in our lives. But not Jesus. Jesus trusts his Father. He knows that even in the midst of the wilderness where he has nothing, he knows that his Father is with him and he loves him. Jesus passes the second test. And then there comes the third test. Notice verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Theologians like to um, ask the question, how did, how did the devil do this? There's a lot of debate among scholars and commentators about, uh, you know, do we take this literally? Did, did, did the devil literally take Jesus to the top of a high mountain or was this a vision? The fact of the matter is we don't know. And, and I appreciate what John Calvin says about this. He says, in a matter that is doubtful, in other words, we don't really know, and where ignorance brings no risk, I choose rather to suspend my judgment than to furnish contentious people with an excuse for a debate. In other words, it's, it's not worth discussing because we don't know. And so whether this is literally or in a vision, the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Just think of the splendor and magnificence of Rome of Egypt, of Jerusalem. And he says, Jesus, all of this I will give you. Just fall down and worship me. Jesus, you can have it all now. Do, do you see what the temptation is? The temptation is to avoid the cross. To avoid the cross. Jesus, you, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to go through all that agony and all that torture and all that pain. And you don't even need to die. You can have it all now, Jesus. If you will but fall down and worship me. Jesus responds in verse 10 and he says, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Another quote from Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You know, if you've read the Old Testament much at all, you know that one struggle that Israel had was with idolatry. They so often turn from the one true God to worship false gods. They, they so often said, in essence, perhaps these gods will give us what Yahweh can't or won't. But Jesus does what Israel could not. He says, be gone, Satan. Makes us think of what Jesus said to Peter, right? Get behind me, Satan. And you remember why Jesus said that to Peter? Because Peter didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Avoid the suffering, avoid the pain. But Jesus did not come to set up some earthly kingdom. He came to redeem his people and to save them from their sins. And in order to do that, he must suffer and he must die on the cross. The Bible says very clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no, what? Forgiveness of sins. Remember that this morning when we come to this table. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to go to the cross. He had to suffer for you and for me so that we might be redeemed. Jesus passes the third test. And the third thing that this passage tells us is that he is triumphant. The devil leaves Jesus, angels come and minister to him, and Jesus has triumphed for us over the schemes of the devil. As we conclude, I, I want you to think about two things. Number one, this passage shows us that Jesus is our obedient Savior. You know, too often we, we look at this passage and, and we only focus on Jesus handled temptation by quoting scripture and, and that's what I need to do too. Now that, that is true. We, we should memorize scripture, meditate on scripture. We should know the word of God so that when temptation comes, we can ward that off with the word of God. But too often that's our only focus in this passage. We have to see here that Jesus was doing this for your salvation and for my salvation. Israel failed all three of those tests. They grumbled against God, they tested God, they left the one true God and ran after idols. You and I are unable to pass these tests as well. We cannot do it. Jesus did what Israel could not do. Jesus did what we could not do. He passed all three tests. And now the Bible tells us that through faith in him, his perfect obedience is credited to us. So that now the Heidelberg Catechism can say this about us if we are believers in Christ. Listen, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. 
I said to you all last week that you cannot, you cannot hope to stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that our righteousness is as filthy rags. If, if you attempt to stand in the presence of God on the basis of your own righteousness, you will be destroyed in the judgment. If you attempt to come to God and say, look, God, here's my church membership. Here's my family tree. Here's my baptism. Here's my profession of faith. All of those things, as wonderful of blessings as they are in certain senses, will not allow you to stand in the presence of God. I fear that perhaps some of you this morning think that you may get to heaven on the basis of your own works, the basis of your own performance. The Bible says no. No. You must run to Christ. You must embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must be found in a righteousness not your own or you will be destroyed in the judgment. This passage is so great because it shows us the foundation of our justification. It's not our works. It's, it's not even our own faith. It is the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He is our obedient Savior. Secondly, though, he is our sympathetic Savior. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And because of that, he is able to sympathize with us in every one of our weaknesses. You ever said to someone before, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't live in my shoes. You've never experienced the, the heartache and the pain and the hardship and the difficulty and the trial that I have faced. You can never say that to Jesus. Jesus sympathizes with you in all of your weaknesses. Whether it's the temptation we have to, to love the world, the temptation we have to test God, the temptation we have to, to maybe take the easy path to avoid suffering, Jesus has been tempted as we are. And Christian, that means he is able to say to you, I know exactly how that feels. I know exactly how that feels. And he sympathizes with us. And, and the great thing is that he prays for us. Hebrews 7, 25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Christian, your Savior understands. He understands. Go to him. Now, unlike us, Jesus never once gave in to temptation. We often give in, we often fail, but, but Jesus never failed. And so when you, when you fall, when you give in to temptation... 
You can cry out to God in in repentance and you can ask for forgiveness and that you can know that you are still God's dearly loved child. Why? Because your Savior perfectly obeyed for you. So Christian, when you fall, do not despair. Confess your sin. Keep looking to and resting in Christ. He obeyed perfectly for you. And he sympathizes with you in all of your weaknesses. I love what J.C. Ryle writes. I, I, I love Ryle. Many of you know that. I would highly recommend and encourage you to read anything by Ryle. But here's what Ryle says. He says, believers should never forget that they have a mighty friend in heaven who feels for them in all of their temptations and can enter into all their spiritual anxieties. Let them flee to him for help and spread before him all their troubles. They will find his ear ever ready to hear and his heart ever ready to feel. Isn't that wonderful? Christian, you have... You have a mighty friend in heaven. And with his ear, he is always ready to hear you. And with his heart, he is always ready to feel what you may be suffering. That's what this passage teaches us. What a wonderful, merciful Savior we have. Obedient for us. Sympathetic to us. May we trust him. May we look to him through the storms of life, knowing that he will never let us go. If you've been blessed by this podcast and would like to support this ministry, you can find us at www.goodnewsinadarkworld.com. Thank you for listening.